The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Uh, we're delighted uh, today to have Stuart Briscoe back with us. We're privileged to have uh, he and Jill uh, once a year. Jill is in prison. I, Stuart, I have it on good word that she's not going to stay in prison, that they're going to let her out this morning. So uh, she's been in there ministering, uh, started a couple of days ago, three days ago, been in and out continuously. So we're grateful. Jill publishes, uh, edits and publishes a, a magazine for ladies. Uh, ladies there are, uh, the, the name is just between us. You can go to that website or there are blanks in the hallway or things you can fill out to get one of those. So you can do that. Stuart uh, hails from England. He's been with us multiple times, uh, pastored Elmbrook Church in Milwaukee for many years. And uh, he and Jill travel the world speaking about the kingdom and speaking about the Savior, the King himself. And so uh, we're always delighted to have him. Before he comes up, I'd like to say thanks for your prayers. Uh, infusions start for me again this week. And uh, so we covet your prayers as we go and uh, get treated, had a CAT scan on Friday. Everything's clear. So to God's uh, glory, we continue to honor him in that way. Amen. Well, you're in for a treat. Uh, one of the things I admire most about Stuart, you know, most guys retire from ministry. Stuart is 83, continuing on in ministry. Isn't that amazing? Stuart, come and preach to us, brother. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Gary, and good morning to you. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Thank you very much for inviting us down here. Having said that, I know that most of you didn't invite us, but uh, (laughs) we just give you the benefit of the doubt anyway. (laughs) But it's always a joy to be here, particularly when we're here to share the good news of uh, Gary's uh, medical condition. We rejoice with you, Gary, and your family and the whole church community in your well-being in this regard. I've been invited to join in the teaching of Mark's gospel this Sunday, and so I'm going to pick up where somebody left off some time. (laughs) I've really been thoroughly briefed, as you can tell, (laughs) on this, but who cares? Um, We're going to look into Mark's Gospel and chapter 10 this morning. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. If I was going to give a title uh, to this talk, which I'm not, but just for the sake of it, I would call this The Best Seats in the House. The Best Seats in the House. Probably doesn't make any sense at all if you haven't read the passage, so let's read it now. Verse 35 of Mark, chapter 10. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) All right, let that soak in. That sounds a little bit like quite common prayers, doesn't it? All right, Jesus, we want you, before we give you any details, we want you to promise to give us whatever we're going to ask. Jesus uh, says, well, what do you want me to do for you? 
They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, Matthew has a parallel passage to this. He he says, in your kingdom. In your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten, that's the rest of the apostles, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them all together and he said, Now you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, there's the passage of Scripture. First part of it I would call disciples behaving badly. (laughs) Disciples behaving badly. Just look at these guys. Mark tells us that Jesus had just finished talking to them very seriously. And uh, the gist of what he had told them was that he was going to go up to Jerusalem. Well, they knew that. They were on their way with him. They, They knew that he had announced that the kingdom that Israel had been waiting for for centuries was about to dawn. They were all excited about that. But he had explained to them that it was not going to work out the way they thought it was. That in actual fact, when they got up to Jerusalem, he would talk to the leading authorities there and they would unanimously reject him. Not only would they reject him, they would be deeply antagonistic towards him to such an extent that they would trump up false charges against him He would be found guilty, even though he was totally innocent. He'd be condemned to death. He'd be killed. In fact, worse than killed, he'd be crucified. But on the third day, he would rise again from the dead. Now, this was weighty material. And he had gone through this at least three times with them. So they'd had every opportunity to hear what he had to say, to get clarification, to ask questions, to think through the implications of it and take ownership of it 
get used to it and begin to live with it. And they had done none of these things. In actual fact, it's really quite remarkable to read that after this weighty dissertation on Jesus' part, the reaction of the disciples was that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Phew! It had gone right over their heads. It was as if they hadn't heard a thing. Now, they, they had to have heard it. Three times had gone through it with them, at least. They had been spending all their waking hours with him. They must have asked all kinds of questions and discussions, but I think they were intentionally ignoring it. They were living in abject denial. Maybe they just couldn't handle the situation. But one thing we do know is this. As Jesus has been talking about these incredibly weighty matters, all they were thinking about was, we're waiting for Jesus to finish so that we can go to him and ask him, will you promise to do whatever we ask you to do? In other words, where Jesus was at that point was not even close to where they were. They were totally absorbed with self-interest. Tell us you'll give us whatever we want. Now, Matthew, in the parallel passage, tells us it wasn't just James and John. He tells us that their mother was involved as well. Mark doesn't bother to give us that information, and Matthew gives us very little information about it, so we're left to conjecture. Why on earth was their mother there? Well, was it because mother was one of these very ambitious mothers? And she goes around and there's nobody like her boys. No. I mean, you know, the sort of situation where both these guys have brought a parade of girls home and mother has seen them all and nobody is suitable for her boys. So she comes up to Jesus and she says, now Jesus, I want to talk to you about my favorite subject, my boys. This is what I want you to do. I want you to promise that they can have the two key places in your kingdom. Because when you get into your kingdom, obviously you're going to be king. That's what kingdom's about. They have kings. And kings like thrones. And if you're going to have a nice throne, there's got to be a high throne to show you're their king and the other guys aren't. So your, king, your throne will be higher than the others. But in order to show off how high yours is, you'll have to have others one on the right, one on the left. The one on the right is the place of preeminence in your kingdom. Guy on the left, he's number two. And I'd like my boys to be number one, number two in your kingdom. Well, maybe that's why it was. Or maybe, maybe the guys had co-opted mother 
into the whole thing. You see, because tradition tells us that the mother of James and John was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Which meant that the mother of James and John was actually Jesus' auntie. And James and John were therefore his first cousins. So this is a family deal. So maybe these guys have thought to himself, you know, Jesus is really very fond of his Aunt Salome. I think they called her Aunt Sally. <laughs> he really, he really wouldn't pass up Aunt Sally. And so we'll get her to come along and then it will be just absolutely great. And we will be able to get what we want. Utterly self-absorbed, callously manipulative. It's all about them. It's all about them. It gets worse. Jesus had very, very clearly stated that he was going to build his church. It was his church. He was going to build it. And the, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, that is death itself, would not stop him. The final enemy of human beings is death. You see? So Jesus says, think of the worst enemy that the church can come up against. And I'll tell you what it is in case you're not sure. It's death. Even the worst enemy won't stop me building my church. It's mine. Don't mess with it. I'm going to build it. Don't get in the way. And nothing is going to stop me. <laughs> then, he, then he turned to Peter and he says, well, his name was Simon. Simon, I'm going to give you a nickname. Your nickname is Peter. Actually, he called him Rocky. <laughs> That's what it meant. Rocky. Come here, Simon. Your name is now Rocky. Okay. He wrote two epistles, remember. Rocky one. <laughs> oh, you've heard it. Okay. We've lost Rocky three. Okay. Then, then this is what he said. Your name is Rocky. And then he's having a little bit of fun with them, you see. So he's punning this. He has a, a British sense of humor. And he... Uh, he says, on this rock, you're rocky, get it? Okay. On this rock, I'm going to build my church. And then he says, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Getting technical here. The tense there is future perfect, which is very complicated, but literally translated is what you bind down here will already have been bound in heaven. In other words, heaven is administrating this church. You are implementing it. Peter, that's your job now. Oh, by the way, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Here we are. So what was very obvious? What was very obvious was that Peter was number one. And these two guys want his place on the next one. So now they're jockeying for position. Now there's competition. There's also opportunism here. 
Because Simon Peter, after Jesus had said, basically, you're rocky and on this rock I'll build my church, he was the first among equals, that's what we call it, you see. Then Simon got a little bit big-headed on this, decided to correct Jesus, and Jesus didn't like that. And in the end, you could tell he didn't like it, because he says to Simon, Simon, get out of my sight. You're doing the devil's work for him. And I believe James and John at that moment saw the slightest opening. Maybe Simon was discredited. Maybe this was their chance. Maybe they could deal not only with self-interest, but they could portray self-importance and that they were basically about self-aggrandizement. Does that happen in the church? You bet it does. Does it happen in the secular world? You bet it does. Do people look out for number one? You bet they do. Do they want the best seats? Oh, yes. There's nothing new about this. Now, having said that, that's pretty condemnatory of these guys. There are some, I believe, extenuating circumstances. For instance, this request. Tell us, Jesus, that you'll grant us whatever we ask you. Well, what Jesus had said was, ask and it will be given unto you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. That's what he'd said. He'd said, ask, and it will be given to you. We're asking. Not only that, he had said, if any two of you on earth agree on something, it will be done for you in heaven. There's not just two of us, Jesus. There's three of us, including your auntie. So there were some extenuating circumstances here. Oh, and by the way, when they'd been having a little discipleship gripe one day, grumbling about how being a disciple was a bit tough and they never got a chance to go home and they weren't able to further their businesses and all this sort of thing, it was too demanding on them, Jesus said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. If you've left anything here, it will be given to you a hundred times over. And as far as you twelve are concerned, you're going to sit on twelve thrones. And you're going to judge the tribes of Israel. So what did Jesus say? Ask and you'll receive. If two of you agree on anything on earth, it will be done for you in heaven. He'd already promised them that the, the disciples were going to sit on 12 thrones. So maybe it wasn't as outlandish as we think. So let's give them credit where it's due. But let's get to the root of the thing. Jesus exhibits incredible patience with them. This is important. Sometimes when people behave badly, they show they're basically absorbed its self-interest. 
Self-aggrandizement is basically what they're about. They'll elbow anybody else out of the way. Opportunism comes easily to them. It's all about me, my, and mine. It's very easy to get very frustrated with them. Particularly in Jesus' case where he's dealing with such weighty matters, they don't seem to be interested. They're just into their personal concerns. What's lovely about Jesus at this point is his incredible patience with them. His incredible patience with them. He said, what is it you want, really? Well, we want those two prime thrones. That's what we want. Well, he says, there is a problem here. You really, you really don't know what you're asking. That, that, that is a big problem. But okay, let, let's accept that's where you are. You're asking this thing, and you don't really know what you're asking. All right, I'll deal with you at that point. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think you can drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Do you think you can be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, the Hebrews thought this, that life was like a big cup. And sometimes your cup was full of blessings. My cup runneth over, sort of thing. And so if you were given a cup that is running over, sort of thing, you drank it. And life was full of blessings. But sometimes it was the cup of judgment. And you know, the Bible is very clear. That God gives us great freedom to make our own decisions, but does not give us the freedom to determine the consequences of our decisions. Now, remember that. God gives us freedom to make our decisions, he does not give us freedom to choose the consequences of our decisions. And all our decisions have consequences. So sometimes our cup is not a cup of blessing. It is a cup of judgment. And it's our fault. And we have to drink it. So we don't think in terms of can you drink the cup that you're being given. But i tell you how we do think. We do think that what we have to do is learn to play the hand we're dealt. We're all dealt a different hand of cards. You pick up your cards, you've got to play them. And Jesus says, I've been given my hand of cards, and I'm going to play them. And there will be ramifications in eternity. Now he says, let me ask you a question. You don't know what hand you're going to be dealt. I'm going to ask you this. Can you tell me right off, right now? You are saying, give me whatever we ask. I'm asking you, can you play whatever you're dealt? Because there's a definite connection between what goes on here and what goes on there. Do you know what these guys said? Sure. Sure. We can do that. (laughs) So you do get the idea that on top of their self-interest and self-aggrandizement, there's some untoward self-confidence here, don't you? 
That's why I call these disciples behaving badly. Jesus here again is very patient with him. He he could have said, you're a bit cocky, aren't you? You're a bit impressed with yourselves, aren't you? You you haven't a clue what's going to come down the pike for you, but you're quite confident you can handle it. Sure. He doesn't say that. He says, well, I'll tell you something. There will be a marked similarity between the cup that you I'm going to have to drink, and the one I'm going to have to drink. And he was right about that. James was the first martyr. He was martyred. And John, assuming that John is the one who wrote the book of Revelation, although scholars are not agreed on this, but let's assume he was. If that is the case, John, this young upstart here, lives to be almost 100 years of age, And he spends year upon year upon year upon year in exile. He was an outcast. He suffered, and we believe he was tortured. Jesus says, yeah, it's not going to be easy for you. And there will be direct correlation between what happens down here and what is yours in eternity. Paul talked about this. He talked about all the things that he'd suffered and he called them in the enlightened momentary troubles which are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. There is a connection. But Jesus says, but you're asking too much because the affairs of eternity are in the hands of the eternal one and they're not subject to manipulation by self-absorbed, self-confident upstarts down here. Wow. Now the other disciples at that point come into the story and they are demonstrating righteous indignation. Because when Christians are indignant, It's always assumed to be righteous (laughs) indignation. How could these young people be so confused that they think that they can come to the Lord and ask him to commit to do whatever they ask him to do? And why have they brought their mother? This is absolutely outrageous. We would never do anything like that. That's one possibility. Highly unlikely. Here's the other possibility. Well, these are a couple of opportunists, if ever there were two. Arrogant. (laughs) Not for nothing did Jesus call them Boanerges, sons of thunder. That's because they had very short fuses. You're never quite sure which way they were going to bounce. You knew that they would fly off the handle if given half a chance. We went to one place, the disciples said, and when we get there, the people didn't receive us. And so James and John came to Jesus and said, why don't you just wipe them off the face of the globe? Real nice guys, (laughs) these guys. And they want seats on the left and on the right, number one and number two. Who do they think they are? When we 
will be much better candidates for those seats. <laughs> so things are getting out of hand. All the disciples are behaving with their own kind of bad behavior. And Jesus says this is a teachable moment. A teachable moment. <laughs> I remember our our eldest grandchild. We have 13 of them now. Most of them are in their 20s. So we've got lots of grandkids stories. But I remember this was one of my favorites. The eldest one got caught out in something or other. And so he was hauled into his father's august presence. And I loved it because I remember hauling this grandkid's father in an identical situation. So I, I was very intrigued to see how he would handle this thing. And it was like deja vu all over again, watching it. Except this grandkid, Danny, came walking in looking very abashed about the whole thing. I mean, he was caught with his hand in the metaphorical cookie jar. His father is looking very sternly at him. This kid comes in with his head bowed, looks up under his eyebrows and says to his dad, teachable moment. (laughs) Teachable moment. Teachable moment. (laughs) Jesus takes the opportunity. He says, come on, guys. Teachable moment. Teachable moment. He said, listen, the way you guys are behaving right now is just like the way they operate among the Gentiles. Now, let's translate that. The way you you are behaving now in the community of faith is just the way they operate in the secular world out there. Wow. Always beware when the church starts to behave like the secular world. Jesus simply dealt with that in one brief statement. Monosyllabic statement. I love those kind. Not so with you. We march to a different drummer. We're playing a different tune. We're on a different track. We are something else. Not so with you. He said the secular society, or the Gentiles if you like, they operate on the basis of authority, and authority being in charge from the up, down, and it's their way of a highway. It's all governed by bottom line. You either produce or you don't, for people are primarily agents or instruments of production. Produce, you'll be okay. Fail to produce, you're out. Produce cheaper than he can produce, or you're out. Top down, in charge. Little mercy, that's how it goes. Jesus says, not so with you. Not so with you. In the community of faith, we expect something different. And he said, what we expect is something called servant leadership. Servant leadership. 
And he gives the classic example of it. He said, as far as I'm concerned, I came from glory and I voluntarily came down here and I humbled myself. And in humbling myself, I took the place of a servant for one very simple reason. Jesus said, I did not come to be served. I came to serve. And if you want to know how much serving I'm talking about, I came to give my life a ransom for many. And remember, and this is for your own personal study, when it talks about I came to give my life for many, that is a direct quotation from Isaiah 53 and ties what Jesus is saying here with the great prophetic statement of Isaiah 53. And there is the ultimate model for the community of faith. We talk about being like Jesus. Well, there's no place for self-interest. There's no place for self-aggrandizement. There's no place for self-importance. There's no place for self-confidence. If you're going to be great in the kingdom... It's all about being a great servant. Let me wrap this up by giving you an illustration from my own position. There was a time when I became a pastor. I didn't know diddly about being a pastor. I'd never been a pastor, never trained to be a pastor. I had no credentials to be a pastor. The whole world was saying, why in the world is he a pastor? Including me. And certainly including my wife. So I made all the mistakes in the book. Now I decided, because I'd had a ministry all over the world before I went to this little church, that we should have a worldwide vision in our church. <laughs> little church, worldwide vision. And to make sure they had a worldwide vision, we were going to have an annual missions conference when we would focus on a worldwide vision. And... In order to have an adequate worldwide vision and an adequate world uh, missions period, it would extend over one weekend and over a second weekend and the whole week in between. And the congregation began to howl and scream about that. Why does it have to be so long? Why in the world do we have to have missionaries? We met a missionary once. She was a school teacher. Her methods were out of date. Her clothes were unfashionable. We believed that she was a missionary because she couldn't make it here. And why are we going to listen to them? And for a whole week, every night, and for two whole weekends, this is ridiculous. And so I decided that... We were going to have a missions conference come hell or high water. And both of them came. (laughs) Jill said to me after a year or two when I'd been pushing this thing, she said, I don't like missions week. So I thought, "Uh uh-oh, there's my one supporter gone. (laughs) I said, why don't you like it? Because she said, you're not yourself. She said, you're so grumpy, you're so bad-tempered. You're so frustrated, you're like a bear with a sore head. I don't know if she's ever seen a bear with a sore head, but I was an exact replica. (laughs) 
And so I, occasionally I listened to my wife and I thought, she's right. She's right. And I thought to myself, these people are uncommitted and we've got to get them committed. They've got to get this vision. I can see it. Why can't they see it? We're going to get this vision. It didn't work. It didn't work. So this is what I learned. The key to leadership in the community of faith is followership. Now, I've been learning Texan. So when I come down here to communicate with the natives. <laughs> so let me try out my Texan. The key to leadership is followership doesn't do it in Texas. If they ain't following, you ain't leading. <laughs> How's that? That is the high point of the message. Cherish it. Okay. <laughs> if they ain't following, you ain't leading. All right. So... How do we go about it? Here's the three golden rules. Start with people where they are, not where you think they should be. Move in the direction they're willing to go, not the direction you're determined they're going to go. Move at their speed, not yours. People say, and you call that leadership? I say, no, Jesus did. Not in so many words, but servant leadership. They say, well, that's not my idea of leadership. It wasn't mine either. I'd learned leadership captaining a rugby team. I'd learned leadership in the Marines. I'd learned leadership in the business community where there was a bank examiner catching people whose money got mixed up with the bank's money, if you get my drift. <laughs> so I understood all about secular society and leadership and management and authority and that sort of thing. And I also understood it didn't work in the community of faith. So I said to these people, all right, let's do it your way. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce myself. I am your new leader. Now, I know that none of you are here, so that's fundamentally irrelevant. But I feel better now that I've told you, all those of you who are not here, that I am your leader. Now, the first thing I want you to know is this. Even though you're not here, you need to know that I'm going to head off in a direction which most of you have already told me you've not the slightest intention of coming with me. That doesn't matter either. You're not here and you're not coming, but I'm going at my speed anyway. So even if you were here, which you're not, and you were coming, which you aren't, you'd have no idea where I'd gone. <laughs> the net result of that will be who will be following at the end of the day. And the answer is nobody. And if they ain't following, you ain't leading. So what have we got to do? Well, we've got to do what Jesus did. Jesus immediately understood where they were. This is what he said. You don't know what you're 
asking. He understood them. He took the time to find out. I assumed that people who didn't do what I wanted them to do were not committed. Absolutely nothing to do with that. For many of them, they were just frightened. Some of them were overloaded. Some of them were stretched unimaginably. Some of them were desperately inadequate. Some of them were worried that if they went and listened to a missionary, they might have to go where there were snakes (laughs) and spiders. No, no, don't laugh. Don't laugh. And it was years and years and years even though we persisted in our annual missions festival, it was years before they started to come to me and say, Stuart, I know, we know that you've been wanting us to have a missionary in our homes for a week so that our kids could meet a real life missionary and hear missionary stories because that's where missionaries are born in a home where missionaries come to stay. But they said, We know you got upset with us because we wouldn't invite any of them. But now we've got our new drapes and we've got our new carpets and we've redecorated the house and our house is now fit to welcome a missionary. And I'd called them uncommitted nothing to do with commitment or lack of commitment it was just overwhelming feelings of inadequacy and insufficiency and an exalted view of missions and missionary and all we had to do was take the trouble to find out where they were instead of insisting on them being where we thought they should be and insisting on them doing it our way when they weren't able to do it that way. And what I found was this. Start with them where they are, not where you think they should be. Go in the direction they're willing to go, not the direction you're determined they're going to go. Go at their speed, not yours. And two things will happen. You will generate momentum, and you can steer momentum. You cannot steer a stationary vehicle. You can steer momentum. And the second thing is, You develop rapport. It's a thing called love and fellowship and community and unity of purpose. And I'm sorry I've gone over time, but if I was coming next week, I would let you out early.